Welcome to the weekly podcast at Second Ponce de Leon Baptist Church. My name is Doc Hollingsworth. I'm senior pastor of this great congregation, and we're delighted that you've joined us. Our prayer for you is that as you listen to this message, you might feel closer to God and closer to God's hope for you. Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them, he said. No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will, be con- neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Last Sunday was a full day for Melissa and me. When we got out of church, I changed quickly in my office, put on blue jeans, and we took off about 45 minutes north to take her sister to lunch. We sat around on her porch for a while after that, then came back home, changed again, went to dinner with friends. So it's 8 o'clock or so before we ever started to get settled at all. I'm unbuttoning the cuffs on my shirt, reflecting on my day. And I said to Melissa, I am so glad today's sermon is over. Preaching a lament psalm, you remember from last week, I said preaching a lament psalm is probably my least favorite preaching task. She said, well, you did it to yourself. Aren't you the one who chooses what's going to be preached on Sunday? I said, yeah, but... But my philosophy of preaching is that we should, over time, get to all the biblical themes, not skip the hard stuff. I mean, if you really trust and believe that the Bible has this power, then I need to preach the whole of it. She said, well, you've certainly chosen something cheerier for next week, haven't you? I said, I don't remember, but when I said I had this gnawing feeling that I had another tough one, she said, no sympathy at all, you do it to yourself. 
And here we are. We put in on our dress clothes, got in our cars, drove past Atlanta's homeless to arrive at this beautiful building in the bounty of Buckhead to hear a story about a rich guy tormented in Hades while a poor beggar is carried by angels into the presence of Abraham. It looks like I've done it to myself again. But here we are. In today's story, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and as usual, he turns things upside down. Our current language for the Pharisees' operating theology is a prosperity gospel. It's a theology that suggests that those who are righteous will be blessed with money and success and all the other blessings that were a direct prize for their holy living. I I, I suppose we all uh, have a sympathy toward biblical interpretations that favor us. And it also makes things simple. It's a simple theology. If you see a man dressed in purple who eats well, lives in a gated house, you can assume he's one of the righteous of God. And if you see a guy with sores and eating scraps and hanging out at the gate of that house, then you can assume he's got some work to do to get right with God. It's an easy theology. And and it works for the Pharisees because, well, they have purple robes and gated houses. So, it's all working. Only this theology does not work for Jesus at all. The one who came preaching hope to the poor has turned things upside down again. Another reversal of expectations. So, Jesus tells this parable. He opens by describing the rich man in his fine clothes with his lavish meals and his good house and real estate and possessions. So concerned with his own comfort he doesn't even notice the plight of others. He probably had really an honored name in the community, only Jesus doesn't give him a name in the parable. And contrasted to the unnamed rich man is a man who does have a name, Lazarus, which means God has helped. You literary types can call that either foreshadowing or irony, I don't know which. This isn't the same Lazarus in John's Gospel, by the way. This Lazarus is described as sickly and poor and downtrodden, and he lies at the property gate, and the dogs come to lick his sores and torment him. And every day, the man with the money would open up the gate, ride through in the back of his escalade, and turn his head so he wouldn't have to engage this pitiful man with the sores. It makes me think of the line from the Bruce Hornsby song. The man in the silk suit hurries by and he catches the poor old lady's eyes and just for fun he says, get a job. Then one day Lazarus dies. We don't know why, we don't know of what. And upon his death he is carried away by angels into the presence of Abraham in paradise. Then the rich man dies. We don't know why. We don't know of what. 
But upon his death, he's buried. I mean, it's probably one heck of a funeral, probably a beautiful casket, wonderful service. But the rich man ends up in Hades in torment. And when he's there, far, far off in the distance, where the torment has been halted, the rich man sees Abraham and that little beggar guy that used to hang out at the gate of his mansion. And did you catch this? He still treats Lazarus as beneath him, as a servant boy. Father Abraham, he yells across, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. The rich man still feels entitled to ask for service from the lower class. Forgive me, this might be a departure from the story. But this week I have had Dan and Nancy Barker on my mind. Their memorial service is 2 o'clock this afternoon, so obviously they have been on my heart. One morning this week I went to exercise at Ansley Golf Club. One of the guys there who mops the floors and shines the shoes said to me, Doc, I hear you're doing Mr. Barker's funeral this week. And I said, yeah. And so we stood there for a while and talked about how great the Barkers are. He said, you know, several of the members here just look right through the employees. They don't even acknowledge us unless they need something done for them. But not Mr. Barker. Mr. Barker always stopped and spoke and asked about me. The president of Emory Hospital wanted to know what was going on with me and my family. It's unreal. Anyway, the rich man wanted Lazarus to serve his needs, and Abraham, the father of the faith, calls back out across the distance why it couldn't happen. Between you and us is a great chasm. There's a great chasm that has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so. No one can cross from there to us. You see, at the gate of the manor, the chasm was between the rich man and the tormented man he hardly acknowledged. But on the other side of eternity, the chasm is the distance between the tormented rich man and the man that the angels flew around. Their fortunes have been reversed. But the chasm started when the rich man looked away. The chasm in community is created every time we see a hurting part of God's humanity and look away. I know it would be easier if there were just one sick man at the end of our driveway. I mean, I could buy him a biscuit each morning, right? 
But the problem's so big. I know, I know, how do we get our arms around this, right? I live just two miles from the church, and every day I pass the poor and the pitiful. There's a woman near our townhouse who seems to live on a bench right on uh, Lindbergh. And she's got a few pitiful belongings in a bag and an umbrella to fight off the heat. Just down the hill from our townhome is Peachtree Creek, and there's a tent community of homeless back beyond in, in the Peachtree Creek area. It's a collection of need and illness that's beyond my imagining. And early in the morning, I'm going to exercise about 6.30 in the morning, and I pass a few stumbling folks for whom it is not early morning, but is very late the night before, right? Addiction and mental illness. So where do we start? It's not like I don't care, but I can't adopt the whole world and buy them shoes. The needs are so big, and my solitary resources are so small to make a dent. So with a big dose of helplessness and a troubling sense of betrayal, we just look away. Between you and us is a great chasm that has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so and no one can cross from there to us. And I have to struggle with whether or not I am a bridge or one of the ones who's created the chasm. The rich man in his torment begs Abraham to send Lazarus to warn his five brothers so they won't end up like him in this place of torment. And Abraham basically responds, they've been told already. They have Moses and the prophets. This isn't new. Here's an example of what they would have heard from one of the prophets, uh, from the prophet Isaiah. Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. The rich man appeals. They will repent if somebody comes to them from the dead. No, says Abraham, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if somebody rises from the dead. Well, what will it take for us? What will it take for us to hear and respond to a clear command to care and have compassion? The, the prophets have been saying it, right? Jesus has been saying it. Will somebody have to rise from the dead? 
Well, we're not unclear here, are we, about our responsibility to the downtrodden? But we just keep looking away. The parable doesn't end cleanly because we don't know what happens. Do the brothers repent? Who knows? And we don't get a therefore. I mean, that is, Jesus doesn't end the parable with a clear lesson saying, therefore, you need to sell or give or volunteer or whatever, whatever. The parable just just ends. But not really. Because if the parable does its work, it stays with us. It gnaws at us just a little bit. Because there is this chasm. There's this problem in Atlanta. The needs are too big, but there's a chasm. And for the Christian, there is a command. But what are we to do? What's God calling from us? What's the first step to join God in healing this broken world? There is a chasm. I don't know. I don't know how God might be speaking to you in this challenging and messy parable. I don't know how it's going to gnaw at you this week and what you will discern as a faithful response. One possibility is you'll get up with George Trussler this week, the chair of our missions council, and ask him to put you to work. But I don't know what fundamental change is beginning to bubble up in your soul. What I do know is we cannot look away anymore. We cannot be faithful to the Christ we claim to serve and continue to look away. Thanks for joining us. If you live in the Atlanta area or visiting Atlanta, come and worship with us in person on Sundays at Second Ponstelian Baptist Church.